Welcome to the Good Book Club podcast, where we make all our book club meetings and bonus events available for listeners to enjoy. On this episode, we feature our regular The Good Book Club meeting and discussion of Carl Sagan's wonderful book, The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. How can we make intelligent decisions about our increasingly technology-driven lives if we don't understand the difference between the myths of pseudoscience and the testable hypotheses of science? Discussion leader Lynette tells us more about Pulitzer Prize-winning author and distinguished astronomer Carl Sagan, who argues that scientific thinking is critical not only to the pursuit of truth, but to the very well-being of our democratic institutions. This is an absolutely pivotal book, and our discussion was fascinating as we shared a variety of insights and perspectives. This book club meeting was originally recorded on Sunday, October 8th. Welcome, everybody, to The Good Book Club. This is our October edition. It is Sunday morning, October 8th, and we are really excited to be here. We always start each of our book club meetings out by reading our mission statement, and we've asked Landon, the co- one of the co-founders of The Good Book Club, if he would read that today. I can as soon as it shows up. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. You can't? Uh, No, I'm not seeing it. Oh, weird. Okay, I'm just going to read it then if Landon can't see it. Um, The Good Book Club was created to bring together nuanced Mormons, post-Mormons, and others with a shared interest in Mormonism. We are introspective, critical thinkers seeking to learn, connect, and build relationships through the catalyst of literature. We welcome all who are searching for a safe space to share authentic thoughts, feelings, and ideas through open dialogue and shared experience relative to Mormon culture. As we deconstruct previous beliefs, we encourage all to find happiness in the process of discovering new religious ideologies, spirituality, and life philosophies. So that's our little mission statement. If you're new here today, that kind of tells you what our aims and goals are and our perspective. So let's get into a couple announcements before we get to our amazing presentation today. The Good Book Club will often just go and do things as they pop up and anybody's welcome um, to come with us. We have a Facebook page where we talk about these different events and invite people. Um, We had the opportunity to go to an offering ceremony at the Great Salt Lake with the amazing Darren Perry. Um, This is a, a ceremony where we experience dance and song and poetry. And then we got to dump some water that we had brought back into the lake to give back. And it's to try to, you know, give a blessing basically to rejuvenate the lake. It was pretty amazing. Um, We also had the chance to attend the Miracle of Forgiveness Art Gala put on by Latter Gay Stories. And that was incredible. We had a red carpet moment. There we are, the original founders of the the book club, myself and Bruce and Landon. And it was a really amazing evening where they basically take old copies of the Miracle of Forgiveness, a book that was so... I guess, pivotal and supercharged for a lot of us that grew up in the LDS church and they make wonderful artwork out of it. So it's very cathartic, very wonderful experience. So, okay. Uh, Let's go to a few events that are coming up for the book club. Other reading opportunities. We actually do have a date for this, which I did not give to Melissa, our amazing slide maker. Vengeance is mine. I also helped John DeLynn run the Mormon Stories book club November 17th. That's a Friday at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. We'll be having a live discussion with Barbara Brown. Of course, Richard Turley was not able to attend the discussion, but it will be Barbara. So grab a copy of this or get it on Audible and get listening. Um, I'd also, if we stay on this slide for a second. Another book that we were reading uh, was the September 6th. Now we already did the book club 
meeting for this, but this was so good. I still want to encourage everybody to go get this book. Um, the meeting that we did with the author, Sarah Patterson, myself and John DeLynn is on the Mormon Stories Facebook page, the Mormon Stories Book Club. You can search that and I will let you in if you'd like to join. Incredible discussion with this author about the September 6th. So even though that actual meeting is passed, still recommending this book here. So, all right. Thanks, Melissa, who runs our slide. And I will take a second to say about the lovely Melissa. It's her one-year anniversary of being part of the book club. She Zoomed in on that fateful day last October where somebody took over our whiteboard, and we all know what happened there. There was a lot of excitement. And we very quickly asked her if she could prepare and run our slides, and she does it. And she's just incredible. We couldn't do it without her. So um, we have a couple other books on the radar um, that we are going to eventually have meetings with the author, kind of a bonus event. This one is called Trauma Bonded. You can get that on Amazon. And like I said, at some point, we'll connect with the author and have a bonus event. Another book that is coming out just in a few days. Um, this is with our friend John Hansen, and it's called Navigating on Black Ice, and it's kind of his story, um, being raised in Mormonism and then finding his way out. I like the title. I think that explains it sometimes, Navigating on Black Ice. So again, we'll be uh, connecting with him at some point, but this is going to be available on Amazon in the next couple of days. So I encourage you all to check that out. Um, our book for next month, and Luann is going to be our discussion leader. I can't think of anyone more perfect than Luann to lead this. And she'll be going into a little more detail at the end. But this is an immense world. How animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us. I, I also can't think of anything more perfect to read in this fall season, you know, where all the animals are hunkering down. So grab your copy of this and we'll learn more about this at the end. And now let me go through my book pile. We are up to our book today. We've been trying to read this. that We're in our fourth year the entire time. And for some reason, something else comes in or something else is voted. I could not be more excited than to introduce our discussion leader, Lynette. And we're going to be discussing Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. Hi. Can everybody hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, I'm really excited about this book. I remember um, as a young young person, which I am not anymore, but um, maybe, what, 30, 40 years ago, watching Carl Sagan's um, TV programs and watching him talk and thinking he was really pretty, pretty fun to listen to. Um, Sometimes, you know, scientists are, are not known by the public, but he was certainly a scientist that was well known to the public. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about who he was. He was born in 1934 in New York. And um, when I went on the Wikipedia site to see what it said about him, all of these words about him, astronomer, planetary scientist, all of these things about him are what came up on the Wikipedia site. And I thought, Wow, those are a lot of labels to put to one person. Um, and so today we'll look at his book as an author. Um, before we get into talking about him, though, I would like to put up our first poll question. Okay, hold on. Let me change back to... Um... Okay, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, we're, we're good. I'm just, uh... I'm just curious to know... Um, how many people had heard of Carl Sagan or how much you knew about him before? So here we go. Here's a poll. You only get one choice. Yep. 
So the choices are never heard of him, had heard his name, read, read some of his works, watched some of his TV programs, know quite a lot about him. And we've had 20 of 27, so another five or six seconds, and we will close the poll and then show the results. Okay, we're going to end the poll, and here's here's the results. Okay, that's really interesting. So, um, only a few people had not heard of him. Quite a few people. So, you know, twenty five percent. It looks like on, on on almost all things had either heard his name, read his works, watched his TV programs, or know quite a lot about him. It's interesting because I've you know, I had watched his TV programs, but I didn't know that much about him. Can we go to the next slide, please? So he talked about um, having early influences in his life towards science. And when I think about that, you know, I usually think of, oh, well, the science fair at school or a teacher at school. But those were not the things that were the greatest influences on him. In fact, probably the number one for him was going to the World's Fair when he was five years old. He went to the World's Fair and it was, you know, all about tomorrow, the, the tomorrow of the future, you know, and what will be available. And that just sparked his imagination. The other thing that was really beneficial for him was science fiction, which I always thought of as not connected so much to science, but that really got him interested. Reading science fiction got him very interested in science. Um, and then he would ask his parents questions and they often did not know the answer. So they would send him to the public library. And he remembers walking to the public library and getting his library card when he was very young, maybe six or seven years old. It seems like somebody's not muted. Could yeah, you I, be muted? Yeah, Thank you. Um, so he had a lot of influences early on that helped him towards science. And he said when he went to college and found out that he could actually have a career and make money doing the stuff that he loved to do, he was so excited that he could hardly believe that somebody could, you know, be an astronomer and actually get paid to do it. Could we have the next slide? Okay, so I really love this quote from him. He says, my parents were not scientists. They knew almost nothing about science, but in introducing me simultaneously to skepticism and to wonder, they taught me these two things that are part of the scientific method. They seem to be um, kind of contradictory, skepticism and wonder, but he talks about how important they both are to the scientific method. Um, one of his first um, stories that he tells in the book is about going to a scientific conference somewhere and he arrives at the airport and somebody's holding a card with his name on it. And so he follows them and the, the driver asks him, he says, well, how do you like having the same name as that famous scientist? And he was taken aback for a moment. And then he said, oh, well, I am that scientist. And the guy got really excited and he said, oh, well, I want to ask you some questions about science then. 
And so he started asking him questions about Atlantis, about the Shroud of Turin, about frozen extraterrestrials that the that the government is hiding somewhere and all of these things. And he said, um, Carl Sagan was just very surprised. He said, this guy was very articulate. He was well-read, but he had no clue of the difference between science and pseudoscience. So um, let's do our, uh, uh, let's see, next slide, please. So here's kind of the um, iconic scientist in our mind, the mad scientist holding the test tube and looking really crazy. Um, let's take a poll on how you view science. So a lot of people think science is too hard or maybe it's only for nerds or some people think science can explain everything. So here, here's our poll. How do you view science? Is it too hard, only for nerds, a great collection of facts, a way to learn, or is it a subject in school? Quite frankly, I think my idea of science has changed over the years. Okay, so we'll do another five seconds. Yes, Joe Fisher says, our understanding has changed over time. That's true. Okay, and we ended the results. Okay, there we go. Oh, yay. Everybody thinks of it as a way to learn. You know, when I was young in school, I used to think of it probably as a subject in school and a, and a collection of facts and too hard. But... Um, when we talk about science, when I talk about science now, I think of it as a way to question and a way to learn about what's going on in the world around us. Um, here are some quotes from Carl Sagan. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking. And science is an attempt largely successful to understand the world you know, back in the, what, 1500s or so, people who we would call scientists today were called philosophers. And when people started, you know, it would, people would follow philosophers' ideas and say, well, this philosopher has the truth, so I will follow them. Does that sound familiar at all? Also, um, in about the 1500s, Galileo came along and started asking questions and started measuring and saying, look, I can show that this happens. You know, we have the famous story that probably isn't true about him leaning over the Tower of Pisa and dropping a couple of balls. And um, that's kind of the beginning of science. He was asking questions. He was measuring the results and finding out about it. So it looks like a lot of people are putting up comments about what they think about science. Um, can we have just some discussion there? How have your ideas about science changed over the years? Landon has his hand up. 
Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm not seeing the hands. Go ahead, Landon. Yeah, to me, uh, I, and I kind of put this in the comments, when I was growing up, science was always something that I was taught to be suspicious of because it didn't agree with the church teachings. I remember getting a book on evolution and and uh, and people coming across the uh, land bridge into the Americas and everything. And I remember taking that home to my parents and they said, oh, no, you know, that's just a theory. We know they came from, you know, uh, Jerusalem, <laughs> 600, you know, and and I studied geology and, you know, oh, the earth is billions of years old. Oh, no, no, no. It's 6,000 years old. We know it's 6,000 years old. So I was always kind of taught to be a little suspicious of science. And now that I've stepped back out of that, it is just the most exciting thing to me to get involved with science and to see science. And I just love going to the museums and looking at things and going, oh, my gosh, look at this. Look at this. This is so amazing as you start looking at it. And as I've looked at the different pieces of science, I see where it now everything interlocks. They all all the different uh, sciences back each other up and support each other. And when you see that, it just starts to build a picture that I'd never seen before, you know, because I always believe, oh, it was God just putting everything together. But when I studied the Book of Mormon and stuff, it fell apart. But when I study science, it all comes together. And so that's what what's been so exciting to me, uh, I think, is I've, I've I've really come to love science in the last year. And science has become my God, uh, you know, and, and maybe you shouldn't quite say that, but I I can rely on science now more than I can the word of God. Uh, and so I, I've kind of replaced how I look at things now. So that's my experience. Thank you, Landon. Rebecca. Yeah, I had a really unusual relationship with science and religion. And I've touched on this before because both my parents were scientists. My dad was a PhD level metallurgist who worked um, in the nuclear power industry. And my mom was a zoologist. So they were pure science. However, they were also extremely Orthodox Mormons. So while I understood the scientific side of things, I was always taught that religion trumps science because, you know, my father, a pure scientist, did not believe in evolution, did, thought the earth was 6,000 years, you know, taught me all these things. Religion was here. Science was here, even though I saw both exhibited in my household. So it was a very strange way to grow up because as Landon said, at school, of course, you were learning the science and in school, <laughs> science trumps religion. So I was always very confused in a circular way about all of it. And so like Landon said, being on the other side of Mormonism with all that confusion finally put to rest, um, he said, science is my God. I would say science is my religion. I now, you know, completely respect trust that I'm still kind of unpacking the way I was raised, the strange religious religion and science um, dichotomy there. But but absolutely, science is almost like, to me, a safe harbor, something that can be trusted um, in most in most areas. So it, it was a weird way to grow up. I'll say that. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Rebecca. JJ. Growing up, can you guys hear me? Yes, sir. Growing up, we're told taught a lot of apologetics people always have the attitude that religion is right and science is going to sooner or later catch up to them there's a quote that i really don't like by someone by the last name of jastro that says uh, the scientists the philosophers are climbing up a mountain and they finally get to the very top and apparently there are theologians that have been sitting there for centuries and i hate that quote with a passion um it tells me that 
these religious people, these people who communicate with God have always known the answers and they never care. They just watched as a whole lot of junk happened. But going back to the original point, it's, I was always told that God is right, religion is right, science will eventually catch up. And we lose a lot from that. And not just in science, in any area of study, uh, history, uh, philosophy, whatever it is. If you take historic stuff or scientific stuff, put them together, you learn a whole lot more instead of the mental gymnastics of trying to combine evolution with a 6,000-year-old world. Um, I wasn't pushed with the young Earth theory when I was younger. I was taught, well, a day is like, a, we don't know how long a day is. God lives on Kolob whatever that is and we have no idea how long that is so it's just somehow we made it work um but the apologetics i think is pretty bad in any field um especially religion i don't even think it's good religion another final point um people seem to have i've got a dog going crazy in front of me hey <laughs> but people seem to have this uh attitude of non-overlapping magistera and i think that's also just as bad um people say i leave my faith at the door and study science or i'll leave my science at the door and go with faith and you have some very extreme views over there um in any field and um one in particular with science is a man by the name of andrew lyle if anyone's heard of him he's a younger creationist he hangs out with ken ham in kentucky at their weird little creationist museum he's got a doctorate in something in astronomy with solar radiation or something and he will, with a straight face, tell you that the universe is 6,000 years old and scientists are all wrong. We're just trying to figure it out. And it's, it's painful listening to it. So I just thought, yeah, a little. Thank you, JJ. Shauna. <clears throat> Sorry, a little different take on, on science is that as I've gotten older, I've found ways that science <laughs> makes sense, is, 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 helps me in my life <laughs> because I was a not science person, but, um, but like I was, was, I was at a thing over the week last week and we were talking about cooking and, and canning and, and just cooking is, is chemistry. Cooking is science. And if you understand what one, how things react, then you can tweak recipes and stuff and that, and you know that alone is chemistry, and and so you can see it in your life everywhere. Different ways of using science, utilizing science. Thank you for that. I think that's a really important statement because sometimes we just think of science as something that goes on in some laboratory far away from us, and we know nothing about. But yes, it's part of our daily lives. Thank you, Tom. Really quick, I just remember growing up in my youth uh, in the eighties. Uh, during the evolution discussion that was going on, he was heated up. It seemed in my area in, in Southern California, and evolution in my religious community and other uh, religious communities, friends and other folks that were other religions, evolution was just a dirty word. And that now, as an adult, fifty plus years old, I'm just going. I'm I'm kind of offended by that. <laughs> There's so much yeah. like to be learned from that as you go out and you see the physical world and it's mind blowing. And it's almost, it's like, wait, you kept that away from me? You, you know what? God. Anyway, that was just, that, I just I thought about that. And ironically too, 
I was in uh, theater back in the day and I, I did Inherit the Wind, if anybody knows that play, The Monkey Trial. So anyway, it was just a lot of fun to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, something you said just uh, made me remember something from my earlier days. Um, I had a friend who taught her children that the word evolution comes from the word evil because it starts E-V and then it has an L. So yes, um, many of us were taught that evolution is evil. Okay, I'd like to hear Joe's comment and then I think we'll move on. Yeah, I'll be really quick. <clears throat> really good thoughts. I, I like what Tom was saying. Like we, we learn all this weird stuff. I think the thing that's frustrating is later in life, there is so much we know through science. That's the thing that kind of makes me mad now is like, holy crap, how can we sit there and say we don't know? And it's just a, we don't know because we don't accept it. But no, we know. We know crap lot of stuff. And to sit there and go, well, we're not really sure if the earth's flat or not. We're not really clear if there was languages before a thousand, you know, stuff like that. That's kind of the frustrating thing to me in life at this point is, yeah, we do. We kind of know a lot. Yes, thank you. We do know a lot. And, you know, the one thing about science is that sometimes the ideas behind science will change because we come up with new information that we hadn't had previously, right? And in religion, it, uh, when things change, it's, oh, no, it's always been that way. So, Luann, let's take your, your comment. Uh, you need to unmute. Yes. Um uh, I, I just wanted to respond to the evolution is evil. It reminded me of a thought of uh, World War II. And I think science is uh, a vulnerable thing that can be misused. Uh, and I think World War II is an example where in Germany and many other places in the world, uh, the idea of survival of the fittest was used to uh define a master race and uh and a lot of destruction happened because of that um so i i would somewhat say science maybe is my religion now but it's science plus kindness um and that's just my thought thanks thanks for that thought you know a science is a tool and you know like any tool it can be misused mm -hmm. if you have a hammer you can hammer nails with it or you can hit people with it right you can yes. use a tool in proper ways or improper ways i'd like to read two more quotes from carl sagan one is science is par far from a perfect instrument of knowledge it's just the best we have and he also said, science carries us toward an understanding of how the world is rather than how we would wish it to be. And I think that's a very important concept to understand. Okay, I want to tell another story that, um, that Carl Sagan talks about in his book. Can we go to the next slide, please? So this is the dragon in my garage. This is probably the most famous story from, from his book. And so he says, imagine I come to you and I tell you, I have a dragon in my garage. And so you say, oh, I want to see it. So the first thing I say is, well, okay, well, you can come look, but you can't see the garage because it's an invisible dragon. And then you say, oh, well, okay, what if we, you know, spread something on the floor so when it walks around, we can see its footprints. So he says, well, this dragon floats in the air. So how about if we use an infrared sensor to detect 
the flame of the dragon. Oh, well, that's great, but this it's an invisible flame that the dragon spits out, and it, it also is heatless. So what if we spray paint the dragon so that we can make it visible? Good idea, except that this dragon is incorporeal. It does not have a body, and paint won't stick to it, and so on. Everything you propose, he says, well, no, 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 no. This just won't work. So let's go to the next slide. So his conclusion is, now what's the difference between an invisible, incorporeal, floating dragon who spits heatless fire and no dragon at all? Does this remind you of anything that you've come across in religion? Open it up for comments here. Landon. It reminds me of everything to do with religion. <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the things, uh, you know, as we've been doing our podcast, one of the things that we run into is all, all the apologetics and, you know, people will attack, you know, any anything that you bring forth that with what what should be evidence and instead it's it's not evidence at all it's uh it, it's you know they'll they'll share their belief they'll tell you they know it but they can't demonstrate in any manner how they know it and uh one of the uh one of the best quotes i've heard came from uh, john lundwall on one of the episodes that we did where uh he says you know the apologists always argue from the absence of evidence and he said, the problem with that is there's always more absence of evidence to argue. And, and I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> yes, that's good. Yeah, there's a there's a comment here that says, if there's no test for a claim, whoops, it disappeared off my screen. If there's no test for a claim, the claim has no value. And that's, um, that's something that uh, Carl Sagan talks about a lot in this book is that it's, it has to be testable. If you're making a claim, there has to be a test for it. Joe, can you give us your comment? Yeah, I completely second what Landon was saying. Just everything that we're ever taught, it's completely like, don't think about it, don't process it. And it all comes from mythology, right? Like you're sitting in a room thinking, oh, what if there is a dragon? What could we do with a dragon? And if we just think about this dragon and all the cool things we could do with this dragon... And then we are taught, I don't know if you remember all the teachings, like, how do you know you have a brain if you can't touch it? How do you know if you have a brain if you can't see it? And I'm like, well, we can cut open somebody and see them. You know what I mean? It's just all these apologetics of, like, how to dismiss our natural gut instinct of, like, but I can't see it. I can't test it. I can't play with it. And then we're taught in religion, yeah, but that doesn't matter, right? And it's just, and then when you find out, yeah, it kind of does matter. Anyway. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Jeffrey. Yeah, I think uh, even aside from the floating dragon, you could think about every non-Western religion, Hinduism, uh, you know, the going into some of the mythologies around paganism, et cetera. And there's, I find that the argumentation that's put forward in this context for what tends to be these Western gods like Christianity and, and Judaism, Judaism and, and Islam, uh, if you apply, when you apply it outside, 
people who believe that, you know, they'll immediately say, oh, yeah, that doesn't make sense that there, you know, Thor exists or that uh, Krishna exists. But there's there's really no difference. And and in the end, if as we've said, if it's not falsifi falsifiable, it really not. It isn't that useful. Yes. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Yeah, I was going to say everybody knows I church watch a lot for the podcast and book club, but there's this weird phenomenon lately I've been seeing in talks and things where they they seem to allude to the idea that the harder it is to believe or to prove, the truer it is. Putting it back on you, you need to have faith, even more increased faith. And talks, for example, by what's his name, Kyle McKay, um, church historian, you know, that Satan, of course, it's always Satan, will put really true, verifiable things in front of you that will disprove your faith. And you have to recognize that it's Satan. And you have to recognize that you need to rise above that. It's on you. And even though it's, you know, completely looks like it's an absolute fact, you need to recognize that that means it's even more what you believe. The opposite of that fact is even more true, which is such a mind game. I mean, you really, as Joe said, your intuition is out the window because you're basically told to override all of that. Um, Landon and I also do a series with the backyard professor on the gospel topics essays. Now those essays cover everything in Mormonism that anybody has a question about, right? They're supposed to try to comfort people and make sure you feel okay. So we've noticed having done about six of them so far, six or seven, that all the essays say the same thing. They say some of the claims, they dispute everything with what they call evidences, but it's all very loosey-goosey and you know their interpretation. But the final paragraph of the essays is always something like, and of course, none of this can really be proven or verified. You just have to feel it. Use the spirit. You have to gain a testimony. So it really is just feeling over reason in almost all of these. You have to feel the dragon, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, lots of great comments here. I just want to read uh, one from the chat. The burden of proof is on the person bringing the claim. I can assert that there's a teapot in orbit between Earth and Mars that controls our weather. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, we need some proof of that before we start making claims like that. Okay, uh, Squire Cook. Some of the some of the claims of the church can be tested. For example, uh, priesthood power to heal. And what I think I've seen in the last few decades is the church moving away from those powers. So you see conference talks now about priest about faith to not be healed, for example. But imagine if if the priesthood power to heal were real, we could certainly test that, and and would certainly have priesthood persons in every hospital healing as many people as possible. We could do controlled tests, controlled blinded tests to prove that priesthood power heals. We could have women who must not hold the priesthood blessing people and compare them with men who do hold the priesthood and uh, and see who gets better. And of course, the church won't endorse or finance that because they know the answer. In the end, we all know the answer, that it's uh, it's a false claim. It has no value. Oh, great comment. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, one of the things that Carl Sagan says at one point is, uh, you know, you can pray over your child or you can inoculate them. You know, it's it's your choice. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, just going along with the previous comment during um, the initial part of COVID, I'm thinking, why don't they just, you know, to the major three or four hospitals in Salt Lake, having one of the apostles go into the ICU with everyone on ventilators 
give them a blessing and heal them. And statistically, it will show that the Mormon church has, you know, these powers and stuff, but none of that happened, you know, so it, it's, and I don't believe any of the health outcomes are significantly different um, in Utah. You know, there was this uh, Netflix series on the people live to a hundred and Loma Linda. I grew up right next to Loma Linda and the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, were a big part of our community and they tend to have be healthier, but they have a much more rigid uh, dietary restriction and, and a reliance on healthcare. So yeah, it's interesting. All this stuff, you know, the faith not to be healed, that's new. I don't remember that growing up. So kind of an interesting, um, an interesting thing. Right. That, that is a new thing. And it's come up, I think, because uh, the scientific method is becoming more known in the world. Right. And so they, they want an out, which brings us to the next slide. So um, scientists look at science, you know, Science is not just as a collection of facts. In science, you need to cultivate curiosity. You need to ask questions. You need to share what you know with others. You need to view everything with a critical eye and test your ideas, which we've talked about a little bit. And I think the one at the bottom is really important, except only verifiable and reproducible evidence that confirms the idea to be true. If somebody does it once in a back lab, all alone and no one else sees it and no one else can reproduce it, then high likelihood that it's not true, right? Um, so let's uh, let's do a, another poll question on how much you learned about the scientific method when you were in school. Okay, so... Um, did you learn nothing about the scientific method in school? Had you heard it mentioned? Did you have a few lessons on it? Or did you study it in detail when you were in school, let's say K through 12? Okay, we'll do another five seconds and then we'll end the poll. Okay, here we go. Oh, that's great. So um, only a few people didn't hear about the scientific method. Most at least heard it, or, or most had at least some lessons on it or studied in great detail. That's great. Um, that's good to hear because I think the scientific method is very important for us. Being able to think critically in any part of our life is important. I mean, even, you know, deciding what car to buy or which other product to purchase, we need to have some information behind it, right? We need some testable information behind it. Let me read a couple of um, things that Carl Sagan talks about. He talks about how everything in the scientific method hinges on the matter of evidence and the standards of evidence must be high. The evidence must be airtight. And the more we want something to be true, the more careful we have to be about that evidence. He says, often 
I give lectures on almost any subject. And then people ask him, do you believe in UFOs? He says, I'm always struck by how the question is phrased. The suggestion is that it's a matter of belief and not of evidence. I'm almost never asked, how good is the evidence that UFOs are alien spaceships? Uh, Bruce. Yeah, I, you know, I'm older than most everybody here. In high school, I don't remember, I don't even know if I took any science classes in high school. Never came across the concept of scientific method at BYU. I was in the business, studying business. Um, I never heard that come up. You know, I would think, oh, geez, you know, 6,000 year old earth, maybe it was six time periods. I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of cognitive dissonance. I was dealing with, you know, hiding as a gay person at BYU, which was, you know, time consuming and um, uh, stuff. And not until I started listening to the post-Mormon podcast world did the concept of scientific method. Then I got interested in genetics. That's why you know, a couple of years ago, we um, did uh, Who We Are and How We Got Here by David Wright from Harvard Genetics. Because um, I'm trying to figure out, okay, if, you know, there wasn't a pre-existence, my life here is a test and, you know, a life with reward afterwards, how does the world work? And that's kind of my whole journey with the post-Mormon community is how does the world work? What's my place in it? How do I have a successful life and being part of, you know, doing my part in a healthy community? So yeah, it's it's very interesting. Great, thank you, um, Rebecca. Yeah, as I started to learn more about the scientific method at school, weirdly raised by scientists, did not hear much about it at home. I actually, now looking back, started to turn it against religion and what I was being taught, you know, trying to see if some of the things they were saying were verifiable. I'll give you an example. The first act of open rebellion I remember having um, as far as uh, being a member of the church was fasting. My family was a 24-hour fasting family, even since I was really little. So fast Sundays were grueling um, physically, <laughs> really bad. I remember being about 15 and I said, I'm, I'm going to go get something to eat. I'm just going to sneak down to the kitchen and I'm just going to get a piece of bread. Now I've been taught that the result from this will be that maybe something not great will happen to me during the week, right? God is going to turn away from me. I'll lose the Holy ghost, whatever. I'm breaking the fast, but I said, I don't care. I'm going to try it and I'm going to see. So early scientific method, right? I snuck down to the kitchen, took the piece of bread, snuck it back to my room, ate the piece of bread, felt better. And then I kind of during the week was like, what's going to happen? Well, nothing happened. And so then I would try other things. I'm going to drink, dang it, a Coke. You know, everybody tells me I'm not supposed to. So really, I and that's a very simplistic way to talk about it. But in my mind, it, it really sort of, I scientific method my way into another uh, set of beliefs that allowed me to, you know, eventually kind of not be so controlled and make my own decisions. So I think maybe a lot of us do that just without thinking about it. We do test things. Uh, the, the, the verifiability of things is really important. Thank you for that um, example. That's really good. Um, I just want to read a couple of, of examples that Carl Sagan gives in his book. He says, in many cases of human history, there's a document of dubious provenance that suddenly appears and it carries information of great import 
which strongly supports the case of those who have made the discovery. And that certainly made me think of a few things. Mark Hoffman, um, for one thing. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a little twist on this idea. Um, and also, you know, the Book of Mormon just appears and, you know, asserts in it that there is going to be somebody named Joseph who's going to have a father named Joseph and he will be a great prophet, right? Hmm, interesting. So there are a lot of things that um, happen and they're hoaxes. They turn out to be hoaxes. Um, he also talks about a theologian in the 1600s who argued that witches must exist because after all, everyone believes in them. Anything that a large number of people believe must be true. So all of these fallacies that come about. And then he says, uh, no one knows how many witches, quote, witches were killed altogether, perhaps hundreds of, of thousands. And those responsible for prosecuting, torturing, judging, burning, and justifying were selfless. Just ask them. So uh, all of these um, examples that he gives can be shown to be a fallacy of thinking. So let's go to our next slide. Okay, so here are just a few elements of the scientific method. Is the hypothesis testable? We've talked about that. You have to have a carefully designed controlled experiment. You have to use critical thinking and an open mind and have independent confirmation of the facts. And you have to quantify it. It has to be measurable. You can't just say, well, I felt good, right? Um, here's, here's another example from his book. He says, um, a psychotherapist wrote, um, any being that you dream of and any incident really exists in the world outside your head. If you dreamed it, if it felt good, if it elicited wonder, then it really happened. And so these are just amazing things. Um, how many of you came up with um, ideas out of the book? I'm seeing a lot of things jump up here about witches. Um, I thought that was a fascinating chapter on the witches, but um, who has an example from the book that really struck home for them relating to in, anything we've talked about or you know how it relates to religion? Derek. Uh, uh, you need to unmute. Unmute. Can you unmute, Derek? I can if I can find the button. There you go. I'm, I'm not sure how this relates to religion, but I, I thought it was interesting that you brought up the witchcraft uh, um, trials because that's why I read the book. Um, granted, I read the book seven years ago, and I've reread many chapters since as I gift the book. But uh, the idea of the candle in the dark uh, I think that was a title of a book that was written back in the 1700s that was so I when I when I I looked at it I thought well, what a wonderful thing candle in the dark I see science as illuminating the darkness and then I looked into where that phrase came from that's why I had to read the book but uh, <laughs> but uh, and I, I don't think this has a lot to do with religion either but um, you're talking about uh, what experiment would you have or what data would you require, et cetera. And one of the things I learned from the book is to flip that, not from what would I require, but when someone approaches me with their idea that 
aliens came and modified the genes of apes to create man uh, so that they could use him as a slave to mine. You know, uh, I've learned to flip it and say, well, if that happened, what would your evidence be? What would it look like? What would you expect to find in the geological record? What would you expect to find in the archaeological record? And uh, so just being able to turn the tables and ask the people with the weird ideas, well, what evidence would there be? What would what does it look like? That That's kind of what I got out of it, as opposed to just uh, um, helping me defeat religion, because I think I'd already done that. <laughs> But thank you. That, that's a really good comment. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, I was just thinking that basically, um, you know, saying that somebody was a witch and trying them or killing them was just part of the control structure of the religion or the powers that be. Because they had to have a way to get rid of people who threatened their control over you know the supernatural and and what they say the supernatural is and stuff and so kind of viewing it in that term we can kind of see what maybe the modern witches are uh, and stuff because they will be discredited by the people in power who don't like what other people are doing or saying so I just thought that was interesting. That is interesting. Thank you. Yeah, often things come down to power and money, right? Uh, Joe. Yeah, just two thoughts on this. So something that Rebecca was talking about was after a while, you just naturally start becoming a scientist. And I think later on, Carl Sagan kind of goes into this where children are just born scientists. They want to test things. They want to figure things out. They want to try them out. And then somewhere along the line, we're taught not to, right? And and which is kind of, again, jumping ahead, a big thing that Carl says is like, no, let's not do that. We got to teach him this stuff. And yeah, it's just fascinating. The other thing is the level of evidence. Like we are willing to like lock down. Yeah, the world's not flat, stuff like that. But we're not willing to lock down our beliefs, right? And so once you get a single level of evidence in life, everything kind of straightens out and it's hard. It's hard to get that. But you start seeing like Carl Sagan talks about the BS, the baloney meter or the bullshit meter. Eventually yeah. that's got to start being something that you got to rely on and you have to tune that because you're taught not to. Anyway. Yes. Thank you. I, I, I love a couple of your ideas there. I just want to want to emphasize a little more is one is about kids just being almost natural scientists. They, they want, they ask questions all the time. You know, you, you get those, little three and four year olds, why, 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 and what, 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 you know, and we tend to squelch them. And really what we should be doing is saying, telling them the answer or saying, wow, that's a great question. Let's go find out because they need to learn that these questions are answerable many, club. many times. Right. Um, and the, the other point you made about the, what does he call it? The baloney detector, I think which is basically using the scientific method and looking at the fallacies that might exist. And uh, I, I didn't make a list of the fallacies. I figure that's something that we hear about a lot. Um, and, you know, there are so many of them, but it's really important to, uh, to, to take a look at those and realize what we're reading, what we're learning about, and seeing if there is a fallacy involved. 
Okay, let's go to Jeffrey. Yeah, I think uh, some of this, I mean, two of the fallacies that, that are common are motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. And what ends up happening is the context. Uh, I think earlier we talked about, you know, do lots of people believe something? That context drives these outcomes. So at the time that he's focused on around witchcraft, that was the general thinking that witches were the problem. And, you know, obviously there's this, this power structure, et cetera. I find it interesting. If you look over time history, it changes. You know, today the big thing is UFOs in the popular culture. And within the church is this discussion of Satan all the time. And, you know, that's quite interesting given the fact that Satan didn't really even exist in the mindset of the people that were uh, in the way that we think about Satan didn't exist in the mindset of, of the people who are writing the Bible. And so that context matters a lot. And that ends up driving in the context you know, of this motivated reasoning or confirmation bias, because you're hearing all these things from being a child. And then you end up uh, repeating that as opposed to really set, stacking, set, stepping back and asking, how am I testing this hypothesis? I mean, I, you know, it's, I always find it interesting about the UFO thing. Apparently, people in the Middle Ages didn't see UFOs because I haven't seen any ancient pictures of things that look like UFOs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, in the 19th century, the big thing is they were finding Viking artifacts because they thought the Vikings like, I mean, they did come to Canada, but they thought they came all the way into the middle of, of where the U.S. is. So I think that it's it's this populism that drives a lot of that context. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that comment. Sean. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, this might be a little bit of a stretch, but... Um... I'm not a, I'm not a huge proponent of cancel culture, and I look at what happened at the, the witch trials and all that, and that seems like uh, their version, although a very violent version of what what today is cancel cancel culture for us now, um, and and then I think about what uh, what President Nelson said and what might be his very last talk that he ever gives in his life. And uh, basically uh, arguing that we should, we should, we should uh, follow this whole cancel culture idea religiously and uh, stop listening to anybody that, that might uh, upset your sentimentalities. And uh, just a little connection that I made in my mind. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, if we if we listened to that and took it literally, um, we could not read very many books that we've read on our in our book club, could we? Because they weren't written by, you know, the appropriate people. Uh, Landon. Yeah, I I like this whole uh, hypothesis and it being testable because uh, I look at uh, someone like Einstein and his theory of relativity and all of the things he predicted should be there as a result of, of his hypothesis. And then we've seen over the last, uh, you know, 80 years or however long it's been since he postulated that, you know, he predicts black holes and we find black holes. He, he you know, the things he predicts we're able to find because of his hypothesis which then gives evidence to that hypothesis. And if we do that same thing with the church, we start finding that everything that we should find there 
we don't find there. So if if the Lamanites, uh, you know, if the Nephites came from Jerusalem and they came here, what should we find? Well, we should find a DNA record that says they came here. We know that there is no DNA record uh, of Semitic uh, uh, blood in there. We we uh, we talked with uh, Thomas Murphy on one of our podcasts, and he was talking. We we went over the essays the church produced and all their uh, bottleneck and all the excuses they gave for why we didn't find it. You know, and and I asked him. I said, "What would we see if the Nephites?" did not exist. If that story was not true, what would we see in the genetic record? And he said, well, we'd see exactly what we see now. Um, and so again, there's these testable things, we should see them. And when we don't see them, that has to be a big, big red flag. And people can argue, oh, it's not there. Uh, it This happened, that happened. But if you're given a hypothesis, there should be things that you see, and over and over we don't see. We don't see writing systems based on Semitic languages, on Hebrew or Egyptian in the Americas. We don't see the things that should be there if it happens. And so to me, that's all part of this. That's a way we can test it, and we don't have to rely on a story. We should see things. They should be predictable, and we should see certain things if they were in fact true. And that that. That to me is one of the things I, I love about the scientific method is it helps you predict what you should see and then you can go look for it. Great comment. Yeah, the uh, the Book of Mormon idea kind of fits in with his story about the invisible dragon, right? There's no difference between the invisible dragon and no dragon at all. And that's the same with the Book of Mormon. There's no difference between it not happening and and what we see right now. So that's that's a really good comment. Thank you for that. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Um, this is something that we sometimes struggle with, especially if we come from a religious tradition where, we, where it's based on feeling. What we want to be true versus what can be shown to be true. So uh, Carl Sagan talks about the very dangerous doctrine that the power or intensity with which something is felt is a guide to whether it's true. That's um, that's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, in the church, I always had that, oh, well, it feels good. I feel happy. And so that's how I believed it was true. And that's what the church teaches. But, you know, I get really good feelings when I watch you know, Aladdin or Moana or some of those fun Disney movies. I get that really good feeling too. Uh, Bruce, let's hear your comment. Oh yeah. I just, the, um, you know, what I want to be true. I have being an older person and I'm around a lot of older people who are towards the end of their life. I have a close friend who has cancer and, um, you know, I don't bring up the topic that I don't think there's life after death. He's religious um, because people in my world, you know, are approaching the end of their life. And, you know, I'm not out to squelch somebody's view that uh, there is nothing after this life. If they want to talk about it, you know, I've come to grips with that. But yeah, it's it's interesting what we want to be true. I mean, 
I've had, you know, friends and family who have lost children or close family members and they're going like, oh, I'm going to see them in the afterlife and stuff. And those beliefs kind of can be useful to that person in dealing with the tragedy and stuff like that. So it's kind of a fine line when you get to those kind of points where, you know, what they really want isn't going to show up and stuff. And so that's something that I deal with all the time because, you know, if I have friends, you know, whose spouse has just died and I, I have people I know just recently that's happened, I don't bring up, oh, there's nothing after this. Yeah. Any of the people I know are very science oriented and they have the same belief, but boy, what you want to be true and what can sh be shown to be true. Sometimes I don't, to use the church's term, it may not be that useful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm pointing that out to people. That's my, into my comment. Thank you, Bruce. Um, well, the, Carl Sagan quotes Henri Poincaré. I don't know. I, I'm not, can't speak French very well, but anyway, he says, we also know how cruel the truth often is. And we wonder whether delusion is not more consoling. And that goes right along with your comments. You know, we've deluded ourselves into believing that there is a life after and that we'll all be together and be one big happy thing because that sounds really good. You know, we want that to be true. Well, we don't have much proof at all that it's true. It can't be shown to be true, but that's what we want to have happen. And uh, sometimes these delusions that we have, you know, Carl Sagan says, well, it would be so fun. This world would be great, wouldn't it? If we had UFOs running around all the time, it would be so fun if, if there really were all these things, if there were magical things that we could heal people with, but they cannot be shown to be true. So we need to go with the truth. Uh, Sean, let's hear your comment. Yeah, so a um, couple things. Uh, it's built right into the Book of Mormon. Uh, Alma 32, which is the closest it comes to having a scientific method of any kind. But it's built right in there that if you just have the desire to believe, mm -hmm. then, uh, then that will lead to coming to some sort of knowledge. And that, to me, is exactly the same thing as just wanting something to be true. So that's that's built right into our process. Um, the other comment I had was I remember watching uh, Cosmos. I think I was like 12 years old when it was on, and there was an episode that that went through uh, evolution, and I was blown away. I was like, "Wow, this is so amazing!" I was sitting there with my mom, and after it was over, I was near tears. I was going. That is so cool. I didn't know all that, all, all that to be the case. And, and then I, I looked and I said, but mom, what does this mean about the truthfulness of the church? And, you know, she, she didn't know how to answer me, but she kind of looked at me. And she said, well, you know, Carl Sagan, he's, he's a brilliant scientist, but when it comes to, to religion, he's just a kindergartner. And, and, and that was, I, I, I look back on that now and, uh, with a little bit of tragedy in my in my heart because i think that had i followed what i was feeling uh my intuition leading me towards i i probably would have come to the realization a lot sooner than i did about you know truth claims and things like that 
Yes, thank you very much for the, for those examples. Um, that was really uh, quite amazing that you were so young and were able to see that. That's wonderful. Um, you know, Carl Sagan says, it's better to have the hard truth than the comforting fantasy. And, you know, we tell our children about Santa. We tell our children about the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. And they're all just fun things. And then we later, they learn the truth. And why do they learn the truth? Well, because as well-being adults, we depend on them knowing how the world really is. If, if there is an adult, you know, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old that truly believes in Santa, then we worry about that person, don't we? Well, unfortunately, um, a lot of us, at least I did, I know, fell into that category. I believed in Santa for most of my life. And I thought that Santa was real. And I recently have learned that Santa isn't real. So I'm using that metaphorically, of course. Um, let's see, I had one more example I was going to read from his book. Well, this was an interesting one. Carl Sagan spoke with, uh, he says, I often speak with religious leaders. I often ask what their response would be if a central tenet of their faith were disproved by science. When I put this question to the 14th Dalai Lama, he unhesitatingly replied, unhesitatingly replied that as no conservative or fundamentalist religion leaders do, that Tibetan Buddhism would have to change. And I asked, well, if it's really a central tenet, like reincarnation, he said, even then it would have to change. However, he added with a twinkle, it's going to be hard to disprove reincarnation. Plainly, the Dalai Lama is right. Religious doctrine that is insulated from disproof has little reason to worry about the advance of science. I thought that was really telling. Bruce. Well, I had a, an experience. It was, it was before the pandemic now. It was a ex-Mormon gathering out in uh, Rancho Cucamonga in Southern California. And we had um, a bunch of, you know, ex-Mormons and there were kids there and there was a playground. And one of the older couples um, had adopted a daughter who was about eight at the time. Their other kids were adults. And the parents were saying, okay, she's eight and she's going back to school and um she still believes in santa claus um you know should we tell her because she's you know gonna get made fun of at school when she's still believing in santa claus and what eight is like the third grade now i looked at him and says okay you're gonna say santa claus isn't real but jesus and god aren't real either and then we're going you know it was it was an interesting conversation you know at what point do you start with the easter bunny the tooth fairy santa claus and at what point do you pop the bubble on other things i just thought that was kind of an interesting um, yeah that that is an interesting thought yeah and i know um i know of people who tell their children from the beginning santa is a story it's a fun story and uh 
you know, we have presents at Christmas that mom and dad buy for us, but Santa is a really fun story, just like Harry Potter is a fun story or whatever, you know, and, and different people are going to approach that differently, which is just fine. Rebecca. Yeah, as I said, I'm a church watcher, and I've noticed in the last couple of years, there's a huge emphasis on choose to believe, sort of what Sean was talking about. You have the ability to choose. It's on you. If you don't believe, you can choose. So Landon and I did a podcast with Colby Reddish about epistemology. It was so fascinating. We're going to put it out hopefully in the next couple of weeks or so. But uh, we talked a lot about this, just this idea of can you choose to believe? And he gave the example of uh, you come home early from work, you hear some noise upstairs, you go upstairs and your spouse is up there with another person caught in the act you know you shut the door and then can you choose to believe that never happened that's not what you saw that's not the scenario and go ahead and live your life as if you know no decisions now need to be made from what you actually realize and it sets up this this whole cognitive dissonance in your head, which I think a lot of nuance members feel, you know, they know, <laughs> they know what they saw behind that bedroom door, they've shut the door and they've just chosen, you know, to believe that that is not what has happened. So I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts about the whole idea of choosing to believe. I mean, it does, it goes into Santa Claus, it goes into all of that. Can you live your, can you live your life basing on choosing to believe? It's a very interesting discussion, I think. Thank you. Yeah, that that was a great example too. You know, my friend always tells me you need to you need to believe. Just try to believe. And I say I I can only believe what I have evidence for. I can't believe in unicorns. You know, Landon. Yeah, I I just wanted to say that uh, you know a lot of times we choose to believe something because it sounds better than what we think something can be. But in reality, that something can really be just as important or just as uh, as uh, real. Um, I, I couldn't let this pass. Jara Lee posted over here, uh, Carl Sagan's wife and what she wrote about their marriage. And you compare that to, um, you know, you compare that to families can be together forever. You know, that's a great thought. But so so was her thought. Uh, and I'll, I'll just read it for those who didn't see it. We knew we were beneficiaries of chance, that pure chance could be so generous and so kind that we could find each other, as Carl wrote so beautifully in Cosmos, you know, in the vastness of space and the immensity of time, that we could be together for 20 years. That is something which sustains me, and it's much more meaningful. The way we treated, the way he treated me and the way I treated him, the way we took care of each other and our family while he lived. That is so much more important than the idea that I will see him someday. I don't think I'll ever see Carl again, but I saw him. We saw each other. We found each other in the cosmos, and that was wonderful. That's as wonderful as families being together forever. You, you, you know, their their reality can be just as kind as uh, as fantasy. I think. Thank you for sharing that quote. Um, that's really amazing. You know, I think I spent a good portion of my life just hoping for the future and not really living the today. And that's a good example of appreciating what we have right now, because there may not be something else. There just may not. Now, I know Robin put a note in the chat that she wanted to raise her hand. So Robin, can you 
can you unmute and talk and give us your comment? Let's see, I will ask her to unmute. Okay, there we go, she's unmuted. Okay, Robert. I don't have anything to say now. It oh. was way back uh, two slides ago, but that's okay. Now no, I know. say it now. Say it now. We want to hear it. Uh, no, I've been uh, studying uh, some of the things with Randy Bell about critical thinking. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and then I thought about how in conference last time, they told us not to uh, study Reiki and some of the mystical types of things. And I have a lot of friends that are involved in that. And I used to be, but I don't not do it because I'm afraid of it. It's, I just don't have time, I'm studying other things. But Randy Bell's thoughts about critical thinking are really, really valuable. He studies the uh, some of the tragedies that we've had in the United States and he talks about critical thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, now I have to find my notes, um, that there's four parts of critical thinking. And uh, when I rode to a doctor's appointment yesterday with my visiting teacher, <clears throat> excuse me, I uh, we mentioned she loved conference and I just kind of scrunched down in my seat and I I really want it to be true because I knew Pre Russell Nelson when he was a surgeon. I used to scrub with him in the operating room, but I just can't accept it. So I just said, I, I didn't like it very much. And she started to tell me about the Book of Mormon and all these different things. And I I just could hear how much she wants it to be true. And through my thinking and what I've learned in my life, I started when I was 16. I didn't believe in the Adam God theory. I wanted it to be true. My mom believed in it, but I couldn't think of a God. If I became a God, <clears throat> let's say I married Landon and we became gods together. And then there's all these other people being God's creating earth. Where is the room in heaven or up in the universe for all of us God's creating worlds? And where does all this go? And I was only 16 and I questioned, and now I'm 71. And the thing that really gave me the freedom to not have guilt about it all is when I read about the... Um, uh, Abraham with Robert Rittner and his 13 series on how it wasn't really there <clears throat> as true. And my Book of Mormon was printed in 2017. And that's when I no longer, even though I wasn't active, I don't have to feel guilty. It's just not true. There's no evidence. Yeah, so. that's right. There is no evidence. Thank you, no Robin. Evidence. Yeah. Jeffrey, let's go with your comment. Unmute, Jeff. 
I, I put a quote up that I like from, from the book about pseudoscience, because in the church, uh, I think that often you will hear what kind of sounds like science. I mean, on my, my mission, I don't, I don't know how many people who experience this. They have this thing called the commitment pattern, which was, uh, uh, which was to build relationships with trust and then test it, test it out in your mind. And that, uh, but there was a high degree of manipulation. So on the one hand, you have the pseudoscience. And on the other, I remember having conversations on a number of occasions to show the absurdity of the belief. Uh, forget, I mean, there's lots of topics like whether the Book of Mormon makes sense, like whether there are millions of people or uh, even the notion of talking about Jesus Christ before hundreds of years before he actually came. Uh, the uh, The response I always got was, well, the more the absurd the claim, the more faith you need. And so mm -hmm. I always felt like in the church, you you were you, you were being whipsawed between these two positions. It's like, well, I'm going to use kind of a scientistic approach to test it out with a heavy degree of manipulation, or I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you the most absurd hypotheses, and you just, if you have faith, you'll believe those. And anyway, I just, you know, and then Sagan ends with, it ripples with gullibility. Thank you. Yes, there is a lot of gullibility involved. And uh, but let's take Douglas and Bruce, and then we'll go on to our next slide because it's directly related to your comment, Jeffrey. Yeah, I hope you can hear me. Um, um, I think Rebecca said we, you know, people can can ask the question, "Can you choose to believe?" And I I think that people I, I've had that you know put to me a lot you should just choose to believe you know can you choose to believe you didn't see a car accident you know if you are a witness to it can you you know you either saw it or you didn't see it but i think a lot of people are it's really a code word for being asked to pretend to believe and so you know you have um it, it the de facto requirement that that is to keep the peace in the family is to pretend to believe don't pop the bubble and uh, in general conference you definitely heard the monopoly presented on the afterlife that um and that people need to pay their way to get there uh, keep paying those time endure to the end pay your tithing to the end and leave it to us in your will so that's about all i have <laughs> Good point. Bruce? Yeah, I just have one comment. We talked about how the, you know, Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus weren't real. I just wanted to reassure Karin that mermaids are still real because Karin is the mermaid artist and she paints mermaids. She has large portfolio of art that has been shown all over. Mermaids are real. But going back to a more down-to-earth um, comment is I had to give the eulogy for my mom in 2016 at a chapel that my father built when he was bishop, uh, when it was, you know, volunteer, the members and building missionaries built it. And I was a, you know, former Mormon and my brother kind of let me he kind of did a screaming thing for me to be able to give the eulogy because you know, a lot of times former Mormons aren't allowed to speak at your parents' funeral. And I gave 
a modified version of this just recently with one of my old bosses. His wife died a couple of weeks ago and I got up and spoke at her celebration of life. And basically both with my mom's uh, eulogy and this close friend's uh, comments I made at her celebration of life is I'm going like, look, they had reasonably happy marriages. They had children. They were able to see all this stuff go on. And compared to the billions of people that have lived, I know with my mother, she lived 94 years. She had a 56-year reasonably happy marriage. My father left her comfortable enough so that you know, the last four years with dementia was in an assisted living. She won. She won the the game of life because she had ha she had a better life, better opportunities, better access to everything than most people have had in the world. And that's kind of how I dealt with her death. And I'm hoping with my my old boss's wife, she just passed away. They had a wonderful marriage. Two nice kids. You know, they had their challenges, but she, they had a, you know, a pretty good life. She won. And that's kind of the way I think of it, you know, when it, it's not the narrative that the Mormon church taught, but there is a narrative that is more reasonably believable and stuff. And that's kind of how I take a look at it. Thank you, Bruce. Um I've really enjoyed reading some of these chat messages. I just want to talk about a couple of them quickly. I liked the question about, you know, when did, um, what was it? When did um, theories to, or supernatural take over from science? And some of the comments were the religion is maybe our, the first attempt to explain the world around us or to find ways of dealing with hard things like death well those were great chats um we talked about gullibility a little bit ago and how uh, there was an also something in the chat about how mormons are pretty gullible that con artists actually like to go to utah because they can get a lot of people to believe them let's go to the next slide thanks melissa uh, so um, here's someone going to the palm reader and the palm reader says, you are very gullible. And Carl Sagan said this was his favorite cartoon. Uh, you know, we seek out pseudoscience. We seek out the supernatural. Um, we seek out somebody to tell us the future, right? We go to the patriarch to get our life's plan, right? At the heart of some pseudoscience and some religion is the idea that wishing makes it so. Darwin said, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. It is those who know little and not those who know much who so positively assert that this or that is true. And I know I've seen that. We see that in a lot of religions. That the loudest speakers are the ones that... Uh, are the least educated about them. Uh, I want to ask the question. Oh, okay. Tom, go ahead. Go ahead and comment. You have to unmute though. Oh, you're good. My mute button was covered up by the chat because I'm running five things at once here. No, <laughs> um, sorry. 
No, this is along the lines of what we were talking about before. And I just, I'm just thinking about this right now. The religion seems like it's built for the first half of life. If we've all been familiar with Richard Rohr and, and or, or the second half of life thinking and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just reminds me that this stuff of supernatural stuff, that kind of superhero thing, that, that was awesome as a kid. It was awesome until it wasn't when I was older. Mm-hmm. And I, I, God, I sound like I've got my Monson voice going, older. Okay. And... <laughs> Well, Tommy. Anyway, um, and it reminds me that, wait, when did religion ever make room for us to have a 40-year-old brain versus a 12-year-old brain or a 50-year-old brain or an 80-year-old brain? Who was it? That's 71, Robin? Or you, you, you learn new stuff through these experiences in the physical world that maybe you don't have in the spiritual world or you have a spiritual experience and you are now somebody who is not the 12 year old thinking these men that are 90 years old are telling you to think celestially. And of course you're like, Oh, yeah, I will do it. And I look at my neighbors and my family and they're all acting like they're like 20 still like we're on our missions and it's robbing us of all the lessons learned from having children or families or responsibilities or liabilities in this life. And maybe all the scientific um world that we live in all the physical world all those experiences but somehow we're supposed to deny all that and accept this spiritual world and never be present in what we learned and that just Tommy that really bothered me okay anyway yeah. <laughs> well, thank you that's no, all I've got I, 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 I just sorry I just I was pissed off <laughs> I think I think that's a great point because um, religions bank on us being infantile, right? They want us to stay very young. They don't want us to use our brains. They want us to depend on them. They don't want us to be responsible for our lives. They want us to do what they tell us to do. Um, I mean, that that's what we're doing when we go to a fortune teller, right? We don't want to have to be responsible. We want somebody else to tell us what to do. And while that may sound fun for a while if we can't be responsible like you say we never grow up we we stay a 12 year old our whole lives and you know it's fun while you're 12 but i don't want to be 12 again landon i i can't help but think you know you look at this whole tim ballard uh situation and those that are familiar with it how he was following a psychic who was talking to to nephi and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, how can this be? Wow. How, how can anyone believe that? Meanwhile, it's all LDS people who believe Russell Nelson's talking to a, a dead Jesus. So uh, what's the difference? <laughs> Good point. Good point. Thank you. OK, so I would uh, like to ask a question here. When Carl Sagan says that the world is demon haunted, what does he mean? Why is this a demon-haunted world? Bruce? Well, one of the things that religion has done is it has the invisible adversary that is going against what the powers that be in the religion want you to do. You know, just a little 
comment on many high demand religions is they want your money and then they want to have sex with your wife. You know, that, that came with, you know, not just Mormonism, but a lot of the, the religions, um, you know, money and access to more sexual partners and stuff. And so when the devil can be blamed for everything, then it gives a lot of power, that concept. And so the demon haunted world, you know, he's like popping the bubble on that belief because, you know, science doesn't answer everything perfectly first time around. But as we keep testing hypotheses and learning more, we get closer to what's accurate and true. But if you have demons and spirits and fairies and, you know, all this stuff that, that somebody is saying is true and you need to follow that, that's, you know, a control and power thing. That's my comment. Great, thank you. Rebecca. Unmuting. Um, yeah, in my mind, I kind of almost changed the title to a God and demon haunted world, because we as human beings do create, we create gods, we create demons to explain natural phenomenon or natural occurrences, because we have to make sense of it. It can't be random. So if all your crops die, there has to be a reason, right? Was it the old lady who gave your crops the you know evil eye? You create something or did something wonderful happen? It's a God blessing you. So you have this whole dichotomy going on in your mind and science to cut through that uh, think about how gods and demons disappear the more we learn about natural cause and effects of everything it, it eventually roots everything out until you perhaps for comfort like we talked about uh cling more to a religious ideology but gods and demons disappear the more we understand how the world actually works Thank you. That's that's excellent. Yes, I think uh, the demons he's talking about are our fears and our hopes, and and it, it covers both sides. Luann. Well, uh, Rebecca just triggered the thought that um, I handle fear so much better since I've left the church because I just never, I couldn't get things together and I always felt like I was displeasing God. And since God displaced the blessings, um, I was always in fear that bad things would happen. And now that I believe more in common sense and living carefully, I don't deal with those fears. Oh, that's great. You know, I, I feel much the same way I had. I really was so fearful of death and it was because of the wrath of God, because I knew I wasn't perfect. Right. And now it's, you know, it's a part of life. It's the end, but, you know, it's just something that's going to happen. Okay, let's go to the next slide. So one thing that Carl Sagan talks about towards the end of the book is the path to liberty. And of course, it's using science. He says, science is more than a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking. And uh, like somebody either said or pointed out in the chat, Science doesn't have all the answers. It doesn't prove everything, but it gives the best explanation that we have for what we see around us. Um, the path to liberty he talks about as being something that gives us freedom. He says, Frederick Douglass taught that literacy is the path from slavery to freedom. There are many kinds of slavery. 
and many kinds of freedom, but reading is still the path. Sorry, I'm just reading some of the chat things here. Oh, yeah, so uh, this is a good comment in the chat. A scientist remembers the source data for an idea. The evidence must create a coherent idea to have a truth. As more data comes, there can be a requirement to adjust that idea. And that's what happens in science. You will see that happening. And so sometimes um, religion will say, well, science changes all the time, so we can't trust it. But religion can sometimes change. But of course, it wasn't a change. Nobody noticed that it changed, right? Does that remind you of Animal Farm, I think? By, uh, let's see who wrote Animal Farm. I've forgotten now. Anyway, um, so having Orwell, thank you. George Orwell wrote Animal Farm. So um, when we look at science, we need to do the questioning. We need to be literate. We need to have knowledge. We need to be thinking. And I think we've talked about that before. And we need education. I think sometimes when we hear the word science, we become afraid that it's going to be too hard to understand. But there, there are ways to understand science. And we don't have to start with the, with the scientific journals. If I look in the scientific journals and start reading them, I get confused. But there are other avenues that we can learn science. <clears throat> Uh, one thing that happens frequently is that we have prejudices and stereotypes, and those save us the trouble of thinking just to have these stereotypes. But we need to have our critical thinking working all the time. So what are ways that you in your life have turned to the scientific method Landon. Uh, I, I just look at things differently now. Um, you know, I, I, I say now it's okay that I don't know all the answers. I think when I was in church, uh, you know, I had to believe that I had all the answers, that they'd all been revealed and I knew what was going to happen. And <laughs> now I'm willing to sit back and change my answers. It's okay to change. It's okay to get new evidence and, and say, Oh, well, maybe I'll reevaluate that and look at it differently now because I've received new evidence. Uh, I think, you know, they always talk about in church, you hear the faith not to be healed. I think I now have the intelligence not to know. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Okay, let's uh, go to the last slide. Um, so... Carl Sagan, at the end, he talks about how patriots, real patriots, ask questions. And he talks about how free speech and other freedoms that are reserved by the Bill of Rights um, are really important. And if we don't have critical thinking skills, um, we will lose our freedoms in those ways. He said, if citizens are educated and form their own opinions, then those in power will work for us. But if we can't think for ourselves, if we're unwilling to question authority, then we're just putty in the hands of those in power. We should be teaching our children the scientific method and the reasons for a Bill of Rights. With it comes a certain decency, humility, and community spirit. 
in the demon haunted world that we inhabit by virtue of being human, that's all that may stand between us and the enveloping darkness. So we need to question the answers that we see out there. And we also need to question the questions, make sure the questions are the appropriate questions. Okay, um, that's all I have, but if anybody has any comments, please raise your hand. Okay, Sean. Yeah, I love that. And I think uh, for me, uh, it's also questioning motives. And maybe I've just become very distrusting of people. <laughs> But uh, but it, it, to a large degree, when I think about the motives of those who are trying to teach me false doctrines, they're really just trying to uh, maintain their own security, you know. Um, but I think in terms of scientific method, uh, asking really good questions is important and always and I always try to ask, okay, what what is the motive behind this person? And that, that helps me to avoid a lot of heartbreak. Thank you. Excellent comment. Jeffrey. I think it's important. <clears throat> I like the, the way you ended that, but it's important that in many fields that are just by their nature complicated, you have to understand the base level knowledge before you can start meaningfully questioning the results. I, I just mentioned that because in areas of immunology, physics, biology, et cetera, often I will see people or talk to people that will question conventional thinking, but they don't even understand the basics. So if you if you don't understand the basics, you're not really not in a position to, to question. Uh, and I, I think that's also quite important because otherwise you'll just end off in another cult or religious-like situation, which you know I've seen many people not in the church do. So that's, that's, that's just the point I want to make. That, that is an excellent point. And, and I think that goes along with the idea of continuing education is really important. Um, yeah, sorry. I, just one other yeah, point, a lot of, uh, and, and I'm actually a scientist. So <laughs> this, is, this is part of my job. But uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is there are very few cases in science where they just overthrow the entire paradigm. It just doesn't happen very often. The plate tectonics is an example. Most mm -hmm. science builds on the foundation of previous thinking and just changes the resolution or the focus of what's going on. So for example, quantum physics does not throw out Newtonian physics. It just shows what happens at the subatomic scale and Newtonian physics is useful for other types of things. That's a misconception for those people who are not in science. You know, because you know the, the people often say, well, scientists are always changing their mind. It's like, actually they're not. What we're changing our mind on is is specifics around data, application, use, resolution, those types of things. So, I mean, and that, and, and I think that's an important point to understand. Absolutely, thank you so much for bringing that up. I appreciate that very much. Um, I also very much appreciated all the comments in the chat. I hope everyone had a chance to read them. This has been a great discussion for me. I was really nervous, but thanks everybody for, for giving your comments. That's very helpful. And Great hopefully job. we can, thank you. Hopefully we can all just keep on learning and improve ourselves. Yeah, wonderful job, job, Lynette. Yay, everybody give Lynette a hand. It Virtually or really. 
<laughs> it was absolutely excellent. And I really feel like the book couldn't have come at a better time because as a lot of us alluded to at conference, we basically heard you know, don't seek counsel or listen to people who do not believe, you know, however you want to take that. I think maybe a lot of uh, people in the church might say that scientists, you know, or people that um, lean more into science are people that they would call people that don't believe. So it could be looked at as an attack on science. So I'm glad that we, um, among other things, many other things, I'm glad that we, we had a chance to go through this book. Um, let us go to our next slide because we are going to have Luann talk to us for a second about what we're reading next. And this will be September, sorry, September, Sunday, November the 12th at our regular time, 11 a.m. So Luann, if you want to give us a little preview for next month, that would be great. Let's see. Let me. Uh, I know poor Bruce. He's like scrolling through everybody to try to get to worry, I don't need to you show talk up. Luann and I'll just move my mouth. No, here she is. Okay. <laughs> Um, I have read about half of uh, the book, An Immense World, and it is a grand tour of the world's creatures and their uses of their own senses. Each page is filled with the descriptions of various animals and what is known about their unique sensory experiences in their world. Each animal can tap into only a small fraction of its own unique sensory bubble, perceiving but a tiny sliver of an immense world. The German word umwelt identifies part of those surroundings that an animal can sense and experience its perceptual world. This book is, is a book of details, hundreds if not thousands of examples of uh, animals and their senses. Much of this is pulled from the various studies of animals and their uh, environments, the use of science, obviously. Here are six examples of the book's detail. One, there are animals with eyes on their genitals, ears on their nose, uh, noses on their limbs, and tongues all over their skin. Sea fish see with the tips of their arms and sea urchins with their entire bodies. Each species is constrained in some ways and liberated in others. Leafcutter uh, number two. Leafcutter ants are so sensitive to their trail pheromone that a milligram of it is enough to lay a path around the planet three times over that they could follow. Three, elephants' lives are dominated by smell. No other animal has a nose so mobile and conspicuous. And I believe it said that uh, elephants are uh, more accurate with the sense of smell than dogs are. Elephants smell in stereo, and they use their sense of smell to find food and to detect danger. Four, catfish have taste buds spread all over their scale-free bodies. Five, the bold jumping spider is unexpectedly cute. Its stocky body, short limbs, Large head and wide eyes are all rather childlike and stir the same deep psychological bias that makes babies and puppies adorable. Not necessarily for me, but that's what the author says. But its proportions don't evolve to engender uh, empathy. The short limbs power giant leaves. Jumping spiders rely on vision to catch their prey. And that is why the eight eyes occupy up to half the volume of their large heads. They are the spiders whose Mwelton is closest to ours. And six, hummingbirds, 
with their four cones can see exponentially more colors than we can, including UV red, UV green, UV yellow, and likely UV purple. Based on the red, green, yellow, and purple hues mixed with the UV that we cannot see and whose wavelengths falls under the color purple, the author calls these colors purple, 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 and ultra purple or pur purple. I can't say it. Pur purple. These non-spectral colors in their various shades account for roughly a third of the colors found on plants and and feathers. To a bird, meadows and forests pulse with grouples and yearples. To a broad-tailed hummingbird, the bright magenta features of the male's bib are actually purple. Unlike, uh, very like the unfolding of language, this book is so immersed in small details as to make it challenging to identify the big picture in the overlying questions. I'm searching for them and I will likely use our Facebook page with Rebecca's permission, I didn't ask last time, this <laughs> month to present details that would be lost or become mind numbing in a book club discussion. And hopefully your responses will give me clues to the big pictures and the questions that interest you. Yeah, we're really excited about this, Luann. And like you say, it is a book with a lot of really interesting details, uh, which is awesome. And I'd love it if you shared some of those on Facebook. And then, like you said, we explore some of those bigger questions. Trust your senses. You know, what do your senses mean? Things like that um, as we get into the discussion. So, yep, I think this is going to be great. All right, let's finish up with our last slides. Um, we always go through a few things uh, that people might be interested in. We have the Good Media Club, where anybody can throw up anything that they find in media, um, document series movie that has anything to do with any aspect of religion or Mormonism. Um, we have the Good Book Club podcast where these meetings that we participate in are available in audio format. You can just search that on any platform where you find your favorite podcast and you can listen. Um, if you would like to watch the broadcast with all the slides in the presentation, um, we are on YouTube, as I mentioned at the beginning, just search the Good Book Club for post-Mormons, and you can revisit past discussions that you may have missed or, or re-listen to ones that you attended to. Um, also, just for fun, Landon and I have a podcast called Mormonish, where uh, we talk to different guests about a lot of the topics we discuss here in Book Club. I'll say that we get a lot of our ideas for podcasting from comments that a lot of you make, you know, and sometimes we have some of you guys on, so... Um, that can be found in audio and also video on YouTube. Just search Mormonish Podcast. Um, if you're just attending here and you're not actually a member of the Good Book Club and you'd like to join us, um, you can find our Facebook page. That is our logo right there with the row of books. And that's where we do most of our communication. If you're not so much on social media, you can send me an email at thegoodbookclub@mail.com, and I'll write you back and give you information on links and how to connect and other events. We're also on Instagram. We should probably take that TikTok off because I haven't done anything on TikTok for a while. So anyway, that ends our book club discussion for today. Oh, one more comment, of course, if you do email me, sometimes it goes to spam, my response. So make sure you take your uh, junk folder and spam if you've emailed the good book club at mail.com. So thank you, everybody. And we'll say goodbye.